Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm April Dawson. My co-host, Irving Joyner, is traveling and not able to be with us today. However, our wonderful colleague and frequent guest, NCCU Law Constitutional Professor, Don Corbett, will be filling in for Irv. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. We are almost midway through Black History Month. And while we at North Carolina Central University School of Law and the Legal Eagle Review discuss Black history all year long, this month provides us with an opportunity to underscore the achievements of Black people and discuss the efforts of Black people throughout history who speak truth to power. Black History Month, especially with this year's theme of Black resistance, also provides an opportunity to emphasize that Black people in this country must still combat systemic racism in this country's institutions on a daily basis. And while we have autonomy here to engage in these discussions, there are still far too many crucial discussions about race and this country's racial history that are not adequately taught, addressed, or discussed in our schools. Indeed, there are concerted efforts to prevent the full teaching of Black history and the current realities stemming from structural racism that exist in this country. One of the most recent examples is Florida's anti-woke law, which restricts how race can be taught in Florida public schools. On this evening's show, we'll discuss issues surrounding teaching Black history in schools and the need for anti-racism education. Joining us for this discussion is University of North Carolina law professor Osamudia James. Professor James writes and teaches in several areas, including education law and race in the law. Professor James is the author of numerous articles. Her most recent is titled White Injury and Innocence on the Legal Future of Anti-Racism Education. Professor James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So we're going to first start with having you tell us a little bit about your article and why you decided to write it. So the article attempts to get at questions about anti-racism education, not only giving the reader a history of anti-racism education, trying to situate it in a current political context, but also helping readers understand what might happen when attempts to implement anti-racism education or, or teach it or engage in it are challenged typically under equal protection. And so my research agenda is about race and law in the context of public education, specifically how race ends up uh, informing the distribution of a good like education. And so anti-racism education and the controversy that was surrounding it was just a good, it was an overlap of several dynamics that are interesting to me, right? One, a set of pedagogies trying to educate people about how race structures society, but also the reaction of white people to this effort um, or, or challengers, challenge, uh, challengers are not necessarily white, um, 
like pushback to the lessons of anti-racism education, and then how how is the law going to respond to those challenges? Now, what's the response been to the article? It's been pretty good. When I was workshopping it, I got a lot of good feedback. I mean, the the whole first third of the article really tries to give you a history and understanding of what anti-racism education is, what it does, how you might teach it, how it might look at different age levels. And so people really appreciate just knowing what, what is it that we're talking about. Um, and then I think a lot of readers have been parents. And so thinking through what is being taught at my child's school, is it okay? What, what do we do when anti-racism education is done poorly, right? All subjects can be taught poorly. And so people I think have appreciated the opportunity to reflect in that sense. Um, and the analysis, I think even when people don't necessarily agree with my interpretation of eco protection, uh, have conceded it's pretty persuasive, right? The story you're telling about the problems here, I hear them, right? Even if I think what you're describing as a challenge is, I think maybe the right outcome, right? Or I think judges might look at this differently. So Professor James, thank you for, first of all, for all of your really interesting and insightful commentary in this area. I find a lot of your work to be fascinating. And, and Professor Dawson, thank you for having me sit in her very large shoes. I hope I do an adequate job. But I, I mm -hmm. wanted to, I was hoping Professor James, if you don't mind, for people who are uninitiated, could you just kind of give an overview slash definition of what your vision is of anti-racism education? Sure. Anti-racism education is a theory of learning and action designed and intended to dismantle racism through schooling. Anti-racism education is also a set of pedagogies and curricular initiatives that interrogate both the structural and interpersonal nature of race and racism. So anti-racism education explicitly highlights, critiques, challenges institutional racism. It addresses how racist beliefs and ideologies structure one-on-one -on -one and interpersonal relationships. It examines how institutions support and maintain advantages and disadvantages along racial lines. And it specifically encourages students to do something about it, to recognize those dynamics, to call it out when they see it, and to think about the decisions they make in their lives that are either complicit in a system of racial hierarchy or that are undercutting a system of racial hierarchy. Okay, thank you, that's great. And I, and if I could have, I wanted to follow up something really quickly. If in the article, and, and I'm paraphrasing just a little bit, so if I get it wrong, please smack me. But <laughs> uh, you said that a full consideration of anti-racism education, you described as both less threatening and more threatening than than purported to be or alleged to be. And I was hoping you could could expand on that idea for our listeners, because it may feel like it's got some duality to it, which I think I understand, yeah. but I just want to make sure that you had the opportunity to explain it. Yes, on one hand, I thought these are basic lessons about race and hierarchy that people should not be afraid of, right? If you've been paying attention, if you're thinking about inequality, if you think about injustice in any way, if you thought seriously about what people were protesting to several summers ago, basic ideas that race is an organizing principle in the United States, that we people are in a hierarchy on the basis of race, that there are advantages and disadvantages that can go with race, that it informs outcomes, that unconscious uh, racism or disparate impact racism affects lives. That is not new, it shouldn't be new. Um, but at the same time, I think it's more threatening because unlike the its precursors, I'm saying anti-racism education really um, 
its its sort of ancestors, if you will, are progressive education in the late 1800s. It's multiculturalism. It's ethnic studies, right? Those are the education movements that came before it. But those movements or those educational interventions were less likely to directly interrogate whiteness, direct uh, less likely to uh, directly decenter white people, and to think about the advantages that white people are getting relative to non-white people. That's very different from multiculturalism. We're all here and everyone's wonderful. That's different from diversity. We'll all think better if we're here together. And in fact, it will serve white people. This is about being more explicit that people in this institution are, are having better outcomes, right? Or people in this community are gonna have better outcomes on account of race. And that even if you don't do that intentionally, you might be complicit in that and then maybe have a responsibility to take that apart. And that is very threatening. And that's where I saw anti-racism education being more vulnerable to legal attack than let's say multicultural education or ethnic studies. Mm-hmm. And can you flesh out the, the centering and decentering kind of component of um, anti-racism education? I think people sometimes hear that, but they don't fully understand what it means to like decenter whiteness. Like, what does mm-hmm. that look like? And why is that so important? You know, so some of this is about identifying and acknowledging that whiteness exists. And in some of the lawsuits we've seen plaintiffs sort of conflating discussion about white people with discussion about whiteness, right? Whiteness is a, it's a baseline. It's a, a place of comparison, right? People are, you're, you're compared to what a white group is doing. It's a position of power. It's a way of of dictating and setting cultural norms, right? That's that's sort of an abstract phenomenon. And it ends up informing and organizing daily life in ways that are not obvious to us, right? What are the values we bring into the classroom? What do we think is good or bad? What do we think is successful or not successful? How do we perceive um, student outcomes and student success? And how do we perceive things like student behavior? How do we perceive parent behaviors, right? Oh, these parents are not good parents. Um, and that's in, informed by norms in white communities, right? And maybe parents of color are engaging differently with the teacher, maybe more deferential to the teacher, right? Which is a good thing because, you know, in your community, you also value education and you think teachers are the expert. And if we read that as checked out, right, we, we engage that family and their children differently than we might otherwise. And so um, multiculturalism, I think, still keeps um, whiteness at the center and maybe compares other groups to whiteness or tries to say all groups are wonderful, even though I think there's an implicit ordering that's still happening. And anti-racism education is like, oh, let's talk about how whiteness structures, how we define success, white patterns of behavior, white cultural references, white norms. Let's call them out as white. And then let's think about what the world would look like if everything wasn't dictated by these implicit white norms that are existing. Um, or what it would look like if we did not automatically attribute or uh, distribute positive things or, or, or benefits or success that's linked to whiteness, right? And so how do, we, how do we move benchmarks or make them more capacious so that you don't have to engage in, you don't have to be white or be white adjacent or engage in what we think about as white behavior um, to be successful. And, and I want to be clear, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that there are ways to be black and there are ways to be white, right? And if you were white, that you'd be okay. But I do think that a lot of our norms are informed by things that end up benefiting 
the opportunities that white people get um, and disadvantaging the experiences um, and the opportunities that people of color and black people in particular get. And so anti-racism education just tries to make some of that explicit in its training of teachers, its discussion with students, and that's a very threatening thing. And I think related to that is this whole notion of colorblindness. And this is something mm. that you, of course, talk about in your article as well. And can you respond to the um, position that, well, we should be a colorblind society. We shouldn't think at all about race. Why, why is that inadequate in our discussions about issues that we continuously have to deal with in this country as it relates to race? Yeah, I mean, colorblindness is just a way to... Um, it's backwards, right? We're just, we're just not at a place yet where we do not have to account for race. It still shapes outcomes. It still shapes life opportunities. And so when we say we want to be colorblind, what we're really saying is we don't want to take any account of the way in which race is shaping our society. And that's a dangerous thing because people still are having life outcomes shaped by how race is operating. And so, and, and colorblindness is a, um, I think it's a historical right? The Reconstruction period was not about being colorblind. The Civil Rights Movement was not about being colorblind. Martin Luther King was not about colorblindness, right? He talked about an aspiration. Can we get to a place where race no longer dictates outcomes or informs outcomes? But if certainly, you know, the Civil Rights Movement was a, a color conscious movement and, and the legislative um, accomplishments that came out of that movement were, were race conscious. And so there's a, a, a weird way of, um, there's an elision there, right? Pretending, it, it's, a, it's a sleight of hand, right? We invert what actually happened um, and colorblindness becomes the ideal when really it ends up maintaining racial hierarchy and a hierarchy in which white people are at the top. I mean, and, and this is one of the attacks on anti-racism education, right? That it's not colorblind and the 14th amendment equal protection demands colorblindness. It's, and it doesn't, uh, it was, addressed to extend citizenship to the formerly enslaved and their descendants in the United States. That was very color conscious, race conscious. Um, but the but because anti-racism education is so clear about naming whiteness and thinking about power dynamics uh, under equal protection, our current interpretation of equal protection, it's a problem. So I wanted to follow up with that point because there's another segment in your article where you reference the concept of innocent white racial identity. And mm -hmm. people can't see me, but the word innocent <laughs> is being put in the air. Yeah, quotes, basically. <laughs> so, yeah. so I was wondering if you could speak to that concept and, and, and explain to our audience how some of our current federal laws about anti-discrimination actually go to protect this concept of innocent white racial identity? Yeah, particularly, this comes up a lot in the challenges to race conscious state interventions. And I'm thinking about race conscious admissions or affirmative action, if you will, race conscious employment initiatives, right? trying to uh, create a preference for minority-owned businesses, for example, to try to level the playing field. And a lot of times when the court reviews these sorts of actions, whether it affirms them or strikes them down, talks about innocent white people. Right? We never said that innocent people should be made to bear the burden of past 
uh, uh, racial injustices. And of course, the court doesn't say we're talking about white people, but those are who the challengers are, right? It's implicit. And when you think about innocence, you also have to think about guilt, right? If, if the white people who are challenging your race conscious policy are innocent, who is guilty? Well, the people of color who got a benefit through your affirmative action program, right? Through your race conscious state program. And it builds on this notion of people of color getting unearned benefits, uh, taking things, taking spots that belong to other people, not working as hard, right? C crossing over into the border, all these tropes we have in our head about people of color, it builds on that and then insulates challengers um, or white people more generally from the acknowledgement that to the extent that we have a racial hierarchy operating, it's in your advantage, right? It's in your, it's done in your name. You're getting benefits from this. And that might make, that might give you an obligation to try to dismantle some of that. Um, and so the, a lot of the complaints, the challenges to anti-racism education focus on this, the idea that schools want to talk about racial dynamics, some of the, the anti-woke bills and the like, a lot of the languages are like, you're not allowed to teach anything that would make anyone feel bad. You're not allowed to make any student feel bad on account of their race or ethnicity. And anti-racism education doesn't do that, right? So that, that, let's get that clear. But to the extent that it's clear or it makes obvious that people are getting advantages in life on account of race, Challengers are up, are uncomfortable with that. And in fact, the court has preserved this sort of like a right to innocent white identity. And we've seen this in lots of, at, at various levels. And so even thinking about um, voting rights cases, right? When Roberts, the Roberts court struck down the preclearance requirements of the Voting Rights Act, it was about really the harm there was that states, Southern states in particular, wanted to be able to move forward as if we didn't have to account for a history of voter disenfranchisement in the state, right? Their right to be here as states on the same level as other states maybe who have never passed attempts to disenfranchise voters, that was important. And, and the court called that state sovereignty. But it was the idea that you could be innocent, like it, white individuals can be innocent, states can also be innocent, and we have to move forward in ways that preserve your right to innocence and elevate that over the right of people to participate fully in their society, to be able to vote, to get a good education, right? To get some help to account for the ways in which they've been excluded from full participation in American democracy. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about teaching Black history and anti-racism education. Our guest this hour is University of North Carolina law professor Osamudia James. She writes and teaches in several areas, including education law and race in the law. Professor James is the author of numerous articles, including her most recent, which is titled White Injury and Innocence on the legal future of anti-racism education. We're gonna to have to take a quick break, but we hope you stay with us. We'll be right back. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, 
and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to 1. facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and 2. increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Uh, thank you for tuning in to the Legal Eager Review on WNCU 90.7 FM. Uh, my name is Don Corbett. I'm filling in for Irv Joyner, who is my colleague and away, and I'm here, uh, blessed to be here with regular host, April Dawson. We are professors at the law school at North Carolina Central. We've been talking this hour about teaching black history and anti-racism education. And uh, our guest today is uh, Professor James from the University of North Carolina School of Law. She writes and teaches in several areas, including education law and race and the law. And she is the author of numerous articles. And, and today's, uh, the bulk of our conversation has been about her most recent piece, which is entitled White Injury and Innocence on the Legal Future of Anti-Racism Education. So uh, I'm going to start this particular segment and and I'm going to try to try to couch this in a way that makes sense. But so we obviously there's a political component that exists within these discussions. And, and I don't think it's controversial necessarily to say that most of the political momentum against anti-racism education, not all of it, is coming from the Republican side of the fence, whether it's the state or local or federal level. But from the outside looking in, it looks like substantively they don't really have an economic agenda for the country and they don't really have a cultural vision for the country that appeals to like non-Republicans in any way. And what they appear to have is just this ongoing anger and hostility and resentment uh, that to this point uh, has not been successful in winning national elections. And the question for me is if they if they ever figure this out, right, uh, that this isn't working on a wider scale, and it's not reaping broader political benefits for them to kind of change up the game plan. Do you think that these kinds of attacks uh, on issues uh, of race, like those we're talking about today with anti-racism education, will cease, maybe become more muted? Or are they mm -hmm. just, do you think, a part of our fabric as a country and they're just here to stay? That Unless was extremely I'm long-winded. I'm sorry. but No, no. I That made perfect sense. And okay. I'm just, I'm not all that optimistic, actually, because I do think that you were right. There's no economic agenda. There's no uh, cultural agenda. There's no vision for how the country might work better together, how it might bring more people in. And so... And that doesn't get votes. And so what you need then is to get control of state houses, of state legislatures, of Congress. And how do you do that? You mobilize voters, right? And then you engage in, I think, extra democratic or you know, uh, outside of democracy 
behaviors like gerrymandering, extreme gerrymandering, um, you know, changing the way you vote, go, going to at-large voting, if you need to uh, dilute uh, the votes of, of people of color in particular or, or minorities in the United States. And the courts have been very sympathetic to that sort of work. But going back to the idea about mobilizing voters, I think the attacks on anti-racism education have been used specifically to do that, right? Talking about it as if this, this, it's this terrible thing, indoctrination, ideological brainwashing, you make it sound scary. Chris Rufo, who's a political strategist, a conservative political strategist, was very clear about this, I think, in, in an article, an interview he gave online. Like, I, I needed to help mobilize voters. And so critical race theory, which is not the same as anti-racism education, was perfect. It sounds scary. It sounds uh, super academic, right? And so we're, we're sowing distrust of academics. And he got, he went on Tucker Carlson's new show, made allegations about it seeping into the federal government and created a movement. Uh, there are conversations about whether the, the Virginia uh, governor's race was impacted by critical race theory and the calls of the governor for people to come out and vote for him because he would get control and he would put power back in the hands of parents. And so these are, they can be very effective ways to mobilize voters in a country that does not have a sophisticated vocabulary for understanding race, that does not have consensus about the legacy of race in the United States, that does not teach about race very well, I mean, in that atmosphere, you can quickly get voters to come out and vote against something that seems bad or scary or unfair because they haven't had a more sophisticated understanding of what's happening. Um, and, you know, you, you just frame it as the scary thing and people can come out and you get voters, you get control, you, act, you enact the legislation that maintains your control, even when less people vote for you. And we continue down that road. I hate to be so pessimistic, but I do actually think this problem will, it has been with us for a long time. It will be with us for a long time. And looking at Ron DeSantis in Florida is just a perfect example. He is using the dust up about African-American AP courses as a way of catapulting, catapulting himself to the national stage so he can have a successful bid for the presidency. Um, and if I could say that for just a second, because you referenced it, and I think you referenced it earlier in our first segment, but but since we, we have this audience, I would like, if you don't mind, just to kind of clarify the relationship between anti-racism education and critical race theory, because you're right, uh, Rufo has made quite a good living in mm -hmm. blurring the lines in such a way as to where now he's in demand across the country. And, and you can see where the confusion has led to the very kinds of political momentum that you talked about. So it, could you clarify how those two things are related, if at all? Uh, and so, so CRT, critical race theory, is a graduate level theory. It's a race-based systemic interrogation of legal reasoning, legal doctrine, legal institutions. It's taught in law schools, sometimes also used in other disciplines, right? No one is teaching critical race theory in K-12, but it overlaps, uh, anti-racism education overlaps with CRT because it identifies race and racism as an organizing principle of American society. Uh, it overlaps with a CRT in recognizing our society as a collective in which the values of the dominant group racially here, whites and wealthy whites in particular are imposed on minoritized groups that don't have the same level of status or power. And so 
uh, in making those things explicit in naming power dynamics and thinking about how, um, how we think about uh, whiteness and its influence and the, the experiences of other groups in a society dominated by white supremacy, they have overlaps there. Um, but the way, I mean, CRT, again, is done in law schools. It's about legal institutions, about legal analysis. It's not being taught to students. But, you know, I, I want to be honest that there are some core commitments there that do overlap and people find it threatening. And maybe they feel like at a graduate level, I have to encounter ideas that might be destabilizing to me, but it's very easy to suggest that children should not be subject to anything that destabilizes. Of course, that's how we continue to find ourselves in the same place because we, we don't talk to children about how race operates and they have uh, a deep capacity for thinking about justice and inequality, right? Anyone who's been around a child who talks to you about that was not fair innately, right? They understand injustice and you can start to talk to them about that early. Uh, in ways that make them better citizens later. Um, but if you did that, you'd be dismantling hierarchy and people don't want to do that. And the, and the argument is, I mean, as you talk about, you know, children, the argument is that um, young white children who are in school where there are discussions that are, you know, critical race theory type discussions or anti-racism will feel bad about being mm. white and feel bad about, um, you know, the white race. Can you respond to the um, to one that assumption and and then to that argument? And you already did. I mean, in terms of your point yeah. about young people having a deep capacity for understanding justice, why is the argument that people will feel bad, white children will feel bad about being white? Why is yeah. that not a a strong argument or or not a reality? <laughs> So I think it rests on the very thin, superficial way in which we think about race and racism. We think you are either a good person or a bad person, and good people are not racist, and bad people are racist, right? And so if you're not on the lawn with a hood and a burning cross, right, those are racist, they're terrible people, everyone else is good. If, if I'm not doing that, then I want to be a good person, and I'm not a racist person, because I, I'm also not engaged in these explicit uh, aggressive behaviors that we've all come to understand as signs of racism. And that's how we often teach racism in schools. Look at these terrible things that people were doing and we don't do that anymore. And so we're good and we're not racist. And so then it becomes threatening to be told, well, we still have a system here of hierarchy. You might be complicit in that system. You might be benefiting from that system, you might be taking steps that you think don't have anything to do with race, but actually do, right? Or make it harder for minoritized racial groups to participate the way that you do. And so if we can think about race with more complexity, um, then we don't have to worry that a child is going to hear, well, I'm a bad person because I might be complicit in a system of racial hierarchy, right? So some of this is about sort of deepening our, our sophistication about how race operates. Um, and then two, I think thinking about what anti-racism education actually does, there's nothing in curriculum about guilt, about blame. It's more about accurately understanding history, thinking about 
disparities that exist, even when we don't have words on a paper that say Hispanic people can't get this or black people can't get that or Jewish people can't get that. Um, it's about understanding how our society actually functions. What race neutral initiatives actually cover race, right? How do disparate impacts uh, uh, disadvantaged communities, uh, minority communities in ways that uh, block them off from the benefits of democracy, right? And and are there other steps we could take to address that? The final point I'll make here is the concern about white children and their psyches uh, and the asymmetry in our concern about children of color and their psyches, right? And so we are upset about an accurate telling of history that might acknowledge that yes, racism is a system developed by whites for the purposes of supporting capitalism, right? And the transatlantic slave trade as a very early uh, manifestation of capitalism. And we're concerned that if kids would know that they might fall apart. But meanwhile, children of color are underserved in their schools, they're absent in their curriculum, hostile learning environments as a result of failure to account for race, isolation and segregation, disparities in discipline and expulsion. No one, seems to be as pressed about that. And there's something really telling there about who we value um, and about why we're concerned now about the psyches of one group of children and we seem okay with the psyches of another group of children. So I'm, I'm gonna change lanes just for a second uh, and it's related, but, but I'm curious as to your thoughts about this. Uh, so we know that the US Supreme Court has been in the news for what I think many would consider, and by many, I mean I, would consider <laughs> a lot of the wrong reasons for the last 12 to 18 months. And I'm wondering if you could kind of speak to how the court's decisions over time have really buttressed this principle of the white injury that your research speaks to. I mean, where, where do we start? Uh, I mean, and a lot of scholars have talked about this. Um, Professor Nicholas Bowie gave testimony about this when they were thinking about reforming the Supreme Court or when Biden held hearings about Supreme Court reform. I don't know if anything is going to come out of that. And the Supreme Court has a history of working in opposition to legislative federal attempts at equality, undermining the reconstruction uh, efforts, undermining the, the, the rights that Congress passed during reconstruction to protect uh, black voters, to protect black people from racist violence. And so there's a real history there of undermining efforts moving forward. Um, so, you know, we talked about critical race theory. Derek Bell's argument was that we would only see progress for people of color and black people in particular when their interests aligned with whites. But once those interests misaligned or the, the cost to whites of bringing more people into the polity became too high, we'd move away. And so I, I think we, we've seen that play out quite a bit. Um, and so this chipping away of race conscious admissions, which I predict is going to happen this year, um, Brnovich and making it easier for states to limit access to the ballot, uh, for people, the independent uh, state uh, legislation doctrine about voting, right, giving states uh, plenary power over access to voting and making it difficult for state legislature, for state Supreme Courts to come in and say, hey, actually, you can't do that, right? Our own state constitution prevents this. Um, you know, over and over again, we see examples here, and the court is in a precedent 
averse mood, right? Doesn't really care about the, the stability that precedent provides is eager to suggest that, well, that, that precedent was, was not right the way the day was decided. And so I'm not, we're definitely in a, a trend. Like you said, the court is in the news for the wrong reasons. To the extent that Congress has done the work it should be doing, the court has been fairly hostile to that. I'm not saying uh, Congress is always right or successful. It does what it's supposed to do, but it has a better track record than the court. And so I think we, you know, we saw um, the women's health case Dobbs last year. We're going to see the UNC and Harvard affirmative action cases this year. I'm not optimistic about that outcome. I'm worried about the independent state legislature doctrine, its impact on voting. None of it's good. And, and then I think Merrill v. Milligan, this is the case where we're thinking about the overlap of partisan gerrymandering and race, racial gerrymandering. Um, and I think I'm not optimistic that the court is going to um, draw an adequate distinction and then firmly rebuff attempts to, to gerrymander by race. Um, I think it, it may allow states like Alabama to hide under partisanship, right? Oh, this was gerrymandered to give you know, Democrats less power. We might not like it, but that's okay. And we're unwilling to acknowledge the extent to which race and partisanship overlap such that you can use one as a proxy for the other. Um, and so, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not optimistic. <laughs> that's where I started and that's where I'll end. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, University of North Carolina law professor, Osamudia James. She is a law professor who writes and teaches in several areas, including education law and race in the law. And we've been talking this hour about anti-racism education. She has recently published an article titled White Injury and Innocence on the Legal Future of Anti-Racism Education. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and filling in for Irving Joyner this hour is our colleague and constitutional law professor, Don Corbett. 
We've been talking this hour about teaching Black history and anti-racism education. Our guest is the wonderful University of North Carolina law professor, Osamudia James. She writes and teaches in education and the law, race and the law, and she is the author of a recent article titled White Injury and Innocence on the Legal Future of Anti-Racism Education. So, Professor James, this has been a a fascinating discussion, and, and we appreciate your thoughtful insight. I had a question about what the status is. So as you have mentioned and as you talk about in your article, there's been a lot of pushback. And of course, it's been casted in the realm of CRT. But as far as anti-racism education, which is more progressive and intentional than, say, just multicultural education, as you've noted, What's the status? So there are some states and politicians that are enacting laws, Florida, for example, you mentioned Virginia in your article. Are there some states and jurisdictions where we're seeing more progressive treatment of anti-racism? So there has been some attempts uh, in, in some locales at the state and local level to push back against the legislation, right? So not passing legislation that says, yes, let's do this, but rather pushing back the anti-anti-racism bills, recognizing them for what they are, which is really an attempt to control how race, American history, but also often sex and gender are taught in American schools. And so I can't remember if it's either Vermont or Maine. I think it was Vermont, a a local school district in that area was able to push back one of those bills. And that's the sort of success that we're going to see when we when we see a form of success. I don't I don't anticipate or expect to see any states or local governments affirmatively adopting anti-racism education. Rather it's can we preserve spaces for teachers who did this sort of work when their community is on board with it. All right. And and so for those jurisdictions and districts and states that that are opposed to anti-racism education, there have been some lawsuits that have Mm -hmm. been filed. And you talk about this um, really well in your in your article. Can you talk about those lawsuits and share your thoughts on the possibility of them actually being successful, particularly given the state of our Supreme Court, as you just kind of talked about? Yeah, and and as you would, as you might expect, they are lawsuits that are brought in districts that have decided to be more explicit about anti-racism education, and and it's not that school districts are like we are doing anti-racism today, right? It's more that districts are being explicit about having to think about power, identity. Um, discrimination in their curriculum. They're using words like equity. They're using words like culturally pedagog- uh, culturally responsive pedagogy. And in the lawsuits, they're picking up on these words as buzzwords. Uh, and a, a lot of the, the bills will say any anything that uses words like equity, right, or diversity, uh, or critical, or critical inquiry, that must be anti-racism education. We have to push back against that. And so the bills can be very broad and pretty scary because they really, they're intended to muzzle teachers and they do. And it goes well beyond just race. It can get into gender, it can get into sex, it can get into family structure. In terms of the suits, uh, we've seen so far two sorts of suits. One is an equal protection suit. The other is a title six suit. So under equal protection, uh, the state is not allowed to engage in racial classifications 
uh, without a compelling interest and in having it being narrowly tailored. There's a whole doctrine about that. And so the equal protection claims tend to be about any aspect of anti-racism education that does think or is explicit about racial classification. So think if we have an affinity group in the district to talk about some issues about race. If uh, younger children are doing identity portraits, ask them to think about, um, you know, what makes up who you are, right? That might include your racial category. Anything in which you can uh, uh, allege that someone has been forced to classify themselves as a particular race or that the state has somehow labeled them as being in a particular race might be subject to an equal protection challenge in this way. A lot of times this, depends on factual controversies, right? The school district says it was a voluntary affinity group or um, we never actually taught the lesson that way. And the plaintiff says, oh yes, you did, or it wasn't voluntary or I had to join. And so that's one sort of suit. The other is a title six suit. Uh, you're not allowed to discriminate if you're receiving federal funds, which most school districts um, are. And so here the arguments are more that curriculum was designed or adopted with an intent to discriminate or that the curriculum adopted led to a hostile environment in terms of race. And here we might think of things like climate interventions, a task force, or again, the, the, the adoption of more culturally responsive pedagogy. In the suits, these sorts of interventions are being framed as hostile to white people. Mm -hmm. um, and interesting that necessarily hostile to white people, right? So any disruption of the status quo means that we are out and that's something that's bad. Um, and so I looked at a couple of the early suits. A lot of them, again, had factual controversies. Some of them had pleading defects and so were kicked out of court. But I expect some of them to move forward. One school district uh, adopted a Black Lives Matter week and some parents brought suits suggesting that this was hostile to white people. Another district developed a sort of a leadership program. They wanted students who wanted to be active about talking about inequality and bringing their community together to be in this sort of special group that met with the principal. And some parents alleged that their students were denied an opportunity because they were white. And so some of this is about, um, uh, you know, did that happen or did that, did that not happen? But let's say a school district does say, hey, we want to spend some time thinking about the experiences of children of color in this building. Is that necessarily hostile to white people? Does it necessarily recognize an imbalance that that uh, undercuts notions of white innocence? And, and is equal protection receptive to that? I think the way in which we understand equal protection and our anti-discrimination precedents are open to these sorts of claims. How far they'll go uh, is still, again, I don't want to say I'm pessimistic, right? I'm, I'm concerned that there's space here, although our anti-discrimination laws have always been capacious enough to be applied in ways that will bring about substantive justice and not just formal equality. And so you could see judges thinking about what does it mean substantively to be free here? I'm not just looking for the absence of the word Black or Asian on the paper, right? I'm looking for what actually changes environments here. Um, and if a judge is thinking that way, some of these suits might not go anywhere. If a judge is thinking about colorblindness, anti-classification, always, it's never okay to classify people by race. If they're looking for a smoking gun that says you're discriminating and they can't find it, um, or, or they look at the programming and think that's your smoking gun, then we might see um, you know, injunctions or um, things that make uh, legal steps that make it difficult for districts to adopt more uh, pedagogy that tries to dismantle racial hierarchy.
So I don't want to get too deep in the weeds because I don't want people to turn this show off, but I am curious. Uh, So for people who don't know, anytime you file a suit under a alleging a constitutional violation, you have to prove that you have standing to bring the claim, meaning mm-hmm. that you have to show that you're the right person to bring this claim at this particular time. I am curious as to the the cases that you read, because I'm not I've not seen these lawsuits. Is are are courts letting people get away with the concept of in being injured tied to this kind mm-hmm. of thought process that that I've been classified because I'm white and therefore that counts as a concrete injury and allows me to bring the claim that that seems to not that seems to run counter to what I what I believe I understand about the need for a concrete and particularized injury usually to go forward. Are they letting them get away with it? I'm seeing that. And so one one suit in particular was brought by parents on behalf of their child or several suits are uh, brought by parents on behalf of the child. So it's the child claiming that I have either been forced into a particular racial classification through training or some sort of programming. Again, it's not always clear these things actually happen, but this is what the allegation is, or that there's something here about the environment that has become hostile in terms of my race often as a a white person. And so those, those have been, like, they have not been kicked out for lack of standing. And there have been a then there have been a set of uh, suits brought by teachers who are suggesting that it's now a hostile work environment. Sometimes you also see like Title VII claims as well, mm-hmm. but suggesting it's a hostile environment as a result of the initiatives that districts are adopting, and those are moving forward too. Yeah, those those Title VII things seem they seem equally silly to me, but at least I can yeah. draw a logical tie between here and there it, because it is tied to work environment. But but just yeah. this, this amorphous. You know, I'm I'm injured because I have to learn about black people or Hispanic people. That seems a little gratuitous and silly. But now if you're flying with it, they're flying with it. I mean, you and I understand it that way, but the plaintiffs are saying, you know, I think that description would be what they might understand multiculturalism to be. But they're mm-hmm. saying, no, you want to talk about the harms of racial hierarchy. You want to talk about who's benefited by racial hierarchy. You want to talk about how whiteness is informing how we operate. And that is hostile to me. I agree. It's a very interesting insight into the psychology of some of these plaintiffs. Um, It really gets at this sort of the right to be innocent entitlement that the court has encouraged. I see the time. Um, Yeah. 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 So I'm going to ask one more thing. We've we've talked about some very, very heavy stuff and I don't want people to, to come off the show feeling like, Oh my God, we're doomed. <laughs> so <laughs> even, even though we may be, but, but the question I'm going to, I'd like to leave with you with uh, is despite all of these political obstacles that, that we've discussed, uh, whether from within inside the political construct or from parents from outside of that construct, uh, what, what is it that excites you about anti-racism education? What, what kind of, if, if given the opportunity uh, to, to thrive in certain areas, what is it, what impact do you see it having that could make us, as a society, leave us in a little bit better place than we are right now? Something I really value and appreciate about anti-racism education is its insistence that students learn to recognize what inequality looks like, to recognize that it is harmful. It's not just a personal insight, a slight, a personal slight or injury or an interpersonal problem, that it is shaping life outcomes uh, in ways that 
make it difficult for groups to thrive and that it encourages students to do something about it, to think about their complicity in it, to push back against it. If your curriculum is devoid of people of color or, or women or people who are disabled or people who are transgender, say something. What are you going to say about that? If you are enrolling, uh, if you're enrolled in a school that is segregated, uh, either the school is sort of, you know, racially isolated or within the school, we have second generation segregation. What are you going to do about that? What are you going to say about that? If you are raising young people, how do you teach them to recognize the inequality when they drive through their neighborhood and their neighborhood is all one color? Do you teach that child to remember that this is not natural. This occurred as a result of intentional forces that got us here today. And that potential is potentially deeply fruitful, right? If we can get more, and, and we're all caught up in the system, right? And so sometimes it's difficult. That's the school I go to. I, I'm not in a position to move, to go to an integrated school across the state. And I get that. But have you talked to a principal about how we change this? Have you talked about the curriculum? Have you talked to your neighbors? Have you thought about how gifted program is done? How discipline is done? What steps, what are you asking for that actually makes these cleavages worse? And I, I get excited by that, this idea that it's your job to do something. Who are you waiting for? You're the person we're waiting for. And that's a really uh, a beautiful aspect of this. And it also asks teachers to do some personal work and think about what you're doing in the classroom that's going to create more space for people to thrive or is going to close worlds and close opportunities for people. And so there's a lot of potential there if we could deepen our understanding, our vocabulary, our, our knowledge of how race and other isms are operating in the United States. And it could, it could move us closer to that perfect union we've been pursuing from the start. Yeah, and it could be that people on the other side also recognize that potential for what it is and enter fight. It's part of the reason exactly. fighting against it so hard. Absolutely. And, and, and we're at a moment in which courts, unfortunately, our Supreme Court and other federal courts are, they're receptive to that resistance, but other moments might come, right? We're seeing an increase of reverse discrimination claims. So we might be in a, a different political moment in 10 or 15 years. And so it's a long-term fight. Um, and I, I listened to a podcast just this morning about the AP fight in Florida and the teacher, it was, his name was Mr. Green. And he was talking about, he teaches, he taught the pilot program in California. And he said, well, you know what? The reality is that 60 uh, teachers across the country, we tested this out and next year, 300 teachers will be doing AP African-American history. And so although that governor might be trying to use this to his own political end, the reality is that more of our students are getting this curriculum and are getting opportunities to do deep and critical thinking around African-American history uh, in particular and race more generally, and that that's a good thing. And we have to keep our eye on that expansion. That's a really wonderful note to, to end on. And I, I appreciate your um your insight in terms of how teaching students and giving them agency to be able to think about mm. society and knowing that they can make a difference regardless of their age. Um, yeah. And that even though there's a lot of resistance, we are still moving forward and progressing. Um, so thank you Amen. so much for being a guest on the show, sharing your thoughts. Um, we both thoroughly enjoyed your article and we hope to have you back again sometime soon. 
It was such a pleasure to be here with you both today. Thank you for reading the article. You always wonder, does anyone read these things? So thank you for reading and for having me here. It was really wonderful to engage you both. And Professor Don Corbett, of course, thank you as well for sitting in for Irv Joyner. Always a pleasure having you on as a guest or as a visiting co-host. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. And, and thanks again to Professor James for sharing our reservoir of wisdom about this. I feel so much smarter already. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> So we'd, of course, also like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope you've enjoyed the show and that you've learned something and you will share this knowledge with others in your family and friend circle. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you missed this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.